MMA40 here. I mean, I hope you know me a little bit by now. I, I hope you realize that for all my flaws, I'm dinky die. For all my flaws, you know, I always try to be true blue with you. For all my flaws, right, I always try to give you what I understand to be the, the fair dinkum truth. And I had no idea that Thomas 777, one of the most formidable intellects of our time, I had no idea that Thomas 777 supported Bronze Age pervert. And if I'd only realized that, I would have taken a pause. I would have stepped back and I thought, I need to reconsider everything because one of the greatest minds of our age, Thomas 777, is squarely on board with Bronze Age pervert. I'm going to say some things that need to be said. Thank you. Thank you. Lately, it came to my attention that a lot of people have been attacking Bronze Age pervert, claiming that either he's Jewish, racially, or ethnically, Crazy. or that he's a, quote, Jewish subversive. That's a bitch move for a lot of reasons. Okay, so people are always asking me when I remove a stream from YouTube, what the happened to the stream, 40? Where did the stream go? All right, you can always check my Rumble. You can always check my BitChute. You can always check my Twitter. You can always check my DLive account. You can always check my SoundCloud and Spotify and Apple Podcasts, right? YouTube has many, 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 many restrictions. And so I pull down a lot of the videos I make from YouTube, such as last night. I immediately pulled down the video. It was too hot for YouTube, but you can find it on Rumble. You can find it on BitChute. You can find it on Odyssey. You can find it on my Twitter. You can find the podcast version, audio-only version, wherever you get your fine podcast, mate. First of all, if somebody has beef with anybody, they should seek out the man himself. This gossipy backstabbing and clout chasing by trying to tear down others, that's that's a bitch move. Okay, that's mean girl, bitch-ass, faggot bullshit. This gossipy, and the fact that it's become so ubiquitous means we got a lot of fucking house cleaning to do. Powerful. This isn't some hobbyist group for, for male bitches to gossip about. Powerful. It's not some clout-chasing uh, social media contest. Preach your and brother. it's not some hobbyist group wherein guys can kind of... No, YouTube did not remove it. I removed it before YouTube could remove it. I was proactive. I was forthright. I was assertive. I was aggressive in protecting my interests and my interests and your interests. They're, they're so deeply intertwined. We're, we're creating this wonderful epistemic community together, and that necessitates sometimes removing videos from YouTube live out some fantasy of, 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 of being a fake motherfucker online with, with some phony ideas. So please, please give your full attention to one of the great intellects of our time, Thomas 777. And talk trash about other people to, to, try and, to try and leapfrog over them to get more, you know, make-believe clout in internet land or whatever. I've known Bab close to 20 years. I'm an open national socialist. Wow, he's known Bap for 20 years. He's an open national socialist, and he endorses Bap. I mean, that's how great Bronze Age pervert is. He is endorsed by Thomas 777. And the whole Bronze Age mindset, and, and let's be honest, the greatest thing about the Bronze Age mindset is the Bronze Age lifestyle. What the heck, you may ask, is the Bronze Age lifestyle? Well, it's modeled on... Classical Greece, classical Athens, where man-boy love was just the highest form of love. The, the only reason you'd ever want women around is as baby-making machines. You want to adopt the Bronze Age mindset? Well, get into living 
the Bronze Age lifestyle, right? It's the whole Bronze Age mindset is not just something that happens from the head and from studying books. It also happens from your bottom, right? There are many ways into the Bronze Age mindset. For example, many of the finest aristocratic minds of our time have scrawled their names and their phone numbers on public lavatories, you know, inviting you know, other blokes to get to know them a little bit better, right? True aristocrats of the spirit often congregate at many of our finest public facilities, public beaches, public lavatories, and they, they do a little bit of socializing, a little bit of, you know, random gay sex. They, they have the, the full-on Bronze Age mindset as expressed in the Bronze Age lifestyle of cornholing and getting cornholed. I always have been since he's known me. I pull no punches. I don't censor myself for anybody. I've been on his podcast repeatedly, and my content there is the same as it always is, even on my own platform. Hey, look, Thomas Seven Seven Seven, avowed National Socialist, endorses Bronze Age pervert. Right? He's known him for twenty years. Right? He's telling you right now that BAP is fair dinkum, he's fair go, he's dinky die, he's true blue, and he's just questioning the epistemics of anyone who is running off their mouth about Bronze Age pervert. I know one better than you do, whoever you might be listening or, or watching this. Powerful. All right, so sit down and shut the fuck up. Yes. Secondly, and I don't want to name names, and I'm not singling him out, but this fucking kid, Fuentes, he seems to have a big mouth, and he likes to talk about people, other people's racial jacket all the time, or purportedly, you know, their backgrounding suspect. Isn't Nick Fuentes a 23-year-old kid with no visible means of income who's somehow always flush with cash? Yeah, I mean, he's got millions of dollars because he's an incredibly successful and talented live streamer. And that Bronze Age pervert is brilliant. I just say Bronze Age pervert is brilliant. He's a he's a scholar. This is fair dinkum, dinky die, true blue. I'm not exaggerating here. Bronze Age pervert is brilliant, and he is a fair dinkum scholar. And with the name Fuentes, I, I don't really think he's got grounds to be talking about people being suspect, okay, in terms of their parentage. Let me just leave it dead. Like I said, I'm not singling him out, but he's the loudest and he's out front about this, and he seems to be real, real concerned about chasing clout. And finally, before anybody jumps my shit about like stuff I said about Yarvin and stuff, I called Yarvin out. I tried to get him to debate me for months, almost a year. I said, all I mean, let, let's be honest. He's he's just speaking nothing but truth here. I mean, Thomas seven seven seven. Do you recall that that defiant, brave, courageous way that he called out Curtis Yarvin? I mean, he called him out. He didn't pussyfoot around. He was fair dinkum, dinky die, true blue, calling him out on his BS. It, it was. So powerful. All I needed was 12 hours notice. I'd meet him in person if you wanted me to. I'd wow. take a Greyhound out to where he's at if you wanted me to. Nothing. Deafening silence. Okay? I didn't, I didn't just weasel around and, like, talk shit about him behind his back. I owned it. I, I addressed him directly. And I didn't come at him with anything he didn't say. Right? He's admitted to his background. He said what his politics are. That's the issue I had with him. You know, I didn't, I didn't decide to, like, make stuff up because, you know, he has more clout than me. And I want to, like, you know, pull mean girl shit so that I can, you know, get the same clout as he has and make believe, you know, fake it, dress up, internet land. Yeah. All right? A lot of shit's got to change moving forward, at least in my corner of this thing, our corner. I'm not the leader of anything, so that belongs to me. Amen, brother. You know, increasingly, we're going to have to make social media and any yes. kind of internet activity just kind of yes. a way where, you know, we can, we can communicate when, 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 every, when, every, um, when every mob of our faction has got to communicate and just kind of keep up good offices with each other. We really, really got to weed out the fucking punks and the phonies. And this has got to become just a real-world thing where it's a secondary aspect. You know, we get online to kind of drop theory, um, you know, deal with matters of faith, you know, and just educate ourselves. You know, like I said, like, keep up good offices. Because it's, it's becoming too much of a thing where punks can just, you know, like I said, play like internet dress off and fuck with our program. That's all I got. Um, I'm sorry to be so negative, but I, I'm not the one who... who... No, no don't, don't, 
Don't apologize, bro. You came with the truth. You brought it. Thomas 777. Honestly, the greatest, the greatest mind of our time. We will not see the likes of Thomas 777 again. Thank you for speaking up, speaking out. Thank you for sharing your truth, bro. That, that was so powerful. All right, here's like the second greatest mind alive uh, philosopher, Michael Hume. According to phenomenal conservatives, you could have, so you have a certain belief and you might have a justification for that belief based on the way things appear to you. And let's just say for fun that it's also a true belief. So you've got a justified true belief. So, um, so, but to, that doesn't count as knowledge, right? Yeah, it depends, right? According to, it seems, well, I guess that's what I wanted to talk about is just this whole like justified true belief conception of knowledge and, and Gettier cases and, and all that. So do you, I mean, what, what is exactly the like consent the, from what I gather, the consensus is that justified true belief isn't knowledge, at least some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So justified true belief isn't sufficient for knowledge, as shown by the Gettier cases. As far as I know, um, almost no one thinks that it might be. And uh, the only person I know of who thinks that, you know, maybe knowledge is justified true belief is Brian Weatherson. But other than that, there's a consensus that the, right, if there's only one guy, I think we can still say there's a consensus. <laughs> you know, justified true belief is not sufficient. So, um, okay. so. Would you mind just giving an example of a Gettier case? Because I don't want to just blow by all this for people who might not be familiar. Yeah, so, I mean, I think this is the best example. This is not in Gettier's paper, but this is a better example. So you look at a stopped clock. So you, you look at the clock on the wall. It says 3 o'clock. Unbeknownst to you, it's actually a stopped clock. Also, coincidentally, it just happens to be 3 o'clock at the time that you're looking at it. All right, so... It uh, seems like you're justified in thinking that it's three o'clock. Like this is the way that people normally find out what the time is. Um, this was, you know, this example was devised back when most people had analog clocks, not a digital clock. Okay. So anyway, looks like you're justified and uh, you got it right, right? You think it's three o'clock and it's three o'clock, but that's not, you don't know the time, right? Right. I, I mean, like, I guess the intuition there is just that, like, if you're lucky, then it doesn't really count as knowledge. Yeah, right. It's just a matter of luck that you got the time right. So even though it's justified, right, it's still a matter of luck. So just, you know, really quick, easy question. Uh, what is knowledge? Yeah, that sound, sounds like a quick, easy question. That was, uh, um, it's unanalyzable. All right. But it, it's something close to justified true belief, but you require a little bit more. Um, you know, I think the closest analysis is the defeasibility analysis where uh, you have to not have any defeaters, okay, in addition to justified true belief. This is awesome. All right, how do you know what is true? All right, you have justified true belief, and can you survive any defeaters? All right, I come before you each day with my justified beliefs, and then I see whether or not I can survive your defeaters. And if I can't, I'm treated like that poor girl in China who is considered, you know, not hot enough to talk about Barbie. No, you have to have no defeaters. Where defeaters are true propositions such that if you added them to your beliefs, it would make you no longer justified in believing the thing in question. Right, so in this case, the clock is stopped as a defeater. Right, so the subject doesn't know that, but... Right, Laponius, he's a defeater. Elliot Blatt, a, a defeater. Right, Luke Croft, a, a defeater. Models first, a defeater. Oh, pipe, a defeater, all potential defeaters. 
All right, and I stand before you this day, and when I'm defeated, I want to admit it, right? If you stump me, that's great news, because as I heard in a 12-step thing this morning, when you're stumped, that's great news, because one, you might find your way out of getting stumped, or two, you'll have to ask for help. Either way, you're a winner. Either way, you're ahead of the game. Either way, you're not scrolling your name in a public laboratory with your phone number, hoping that some schoolboy will call you, right? If you added that, if you added to their belief system that the clock is stopped, then they wouldn't be justified in believing that it was three o'clock. And so that's why it's not knowledge. Okay, now I don't think this, so even this I think is not a perfect analysis, but you get, you have to get increasingly complicated to get counterexamples, <laughs> right? I don't think anyone has gotten an analysis that's completely free of counterexamples, but I'm not really worried by that because I think that's true of basically every concept, hmm. right? Like ba basically philosophers never analyzed anything successfully. <laughs> What about a uh, married bachelor? Okay. I mean, that's a really useful concept of truth. Truth is that which survives defeaters. I mean, it's not, it's not just an endless, you know, endless, inexhaustible, you know, uh, unfalsifiable definition of truth. But in practice, if you have good reason for believing what you believe and you can survive defeaters, then what you believe is probably dinky dye. What you believe is probably true blue. And what you believe is probably fair dinkum. And how can you get any better than that? It's just like if they're like to feel as if they are directly being appeared to by God, then like I can provide some reasons for thinking that. So do you guys know this Emerson Green YouTube channel? It's a channel just devoted entirely to epistemology, right? Developing good epistemics. And I, I think the blokes are a Christian. And uh, I really like this channel, YouTube threw it over to me yesterday and uh, really enjoying it. So how do we know what is true? That maybe they're misinterpreting that experience. But, you know, I don't really know how I would go about defeating that other than just like, you know, making the entire case for atheism. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned before, um, I mentioned before there are two kinds of defeaters, right? They're called rebutting defeaters and undercutting defeaters. The rebutting defeater would be just like trying to give evidence against the existence of God, just you know, independently, right? Independently of your religious experience. The undercutting defeater would be to try to suggest that maybe this type of experience is unreliable. Um, so I think you can make that argument. I think you shouldn't, you shouldn't respond to religious experience by just saying, oh, well, you can't prove that it's reliable, right? Because, you know, again, that applies to everything. Um, but you can say... For example, yeah, but people who have different, who are brought up in different religions can have different religious experiences. Like there are religious experiences had by people with all different religions, and they usually claim that it supports their religion, but they have incompatible religions, right? So this would suggest that maybe it's not reliable and that the, ex the experience is overly influenced by your upbringing and your culture. Right. So that would, be, that would constitute a, a defeater or like a, an undercutting defeater? Alleged undercutting defeater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was, I was accused of being inconsistent recently, and it really bothered me because they were just like, oh, you know, you say that religious experiences probably aren't like a great way for ascertaining the truth about reality, but you're also sympathetic to phenomenal conservatism. So how do you make sense of that? And I was like, well, you know, phenomenal conservatism doesn't mean that you just accept every seeming at face value. Like, I, like you could provide the kind of undercutting defeater that, that you just offered there, or like many other potential ones. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, so to me, it's uh, it's plausible that people could have insights, you know, into the nature of life and reality when they have religious experiences. Um, I I'm very skeptical that they support a specific religion, hmm. right? and you know, partly because of that reason that I said before. Um, but also, like, I'm a little more sympathetic to this, or a little um, a little bit more credulous about the religious experience than about the drug induced experiences, because the religious experiences are not induced by hallucinogenic drugs. You usually, I guess, they could be. In, induced mm -hmm. by drugs, right? But yeah. they could be had when your brain is just, you know, 
in a seemingly normal condition. Right. Um, and like I said, I'm inclined to just say that, like, it, you know, they do have a justification. The people who are having these experiences where, um, you know, they're just like, look, I'm just seeing God, like, in the same way that I like that you see this table in front of you. It's like, well, what else am I supposed to say to that other than, you know, have fun being a theist? Because if you're really having that experience, then, like, <laughs> like what can I say to you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the experience might be sufficiently compelling that um, you can't, you know, like, even if you give great arguments against the existence of God, they might still think, right, the experience is more compelling. Um, and, you know, imagine somebody trying to argue you out of the existence of the table right in front of you, right? It's yeah. like, it's going to be really hard. Um, I should say, though, like, um, I'm very skeptical that these experiences could support very specific claims about God, like that he's all knowing, all powerful and perfectly good or something like I'm very doubtful that you have an experience <laughs> that shows you all of that to be the case. Um, or, you know, that, that you could just tell by the experience that Christianity as a whole is true. Um, I think even planning to acknowledge it, like I, I heard something, uh, it was an interview with him that's like somewhat recent, like maybe a couple years old. Um, and he was like pretty squishy on the whole, like our, our Judeo-Christian religions all kind of worshiping the same God. And he like, he didn't really want to go all the way and say like, oh yeah, they are. But he was like surprisingly, because normally when you talk to like a... Okay, a great uh, discussion there with a leading philosopher, Michael Humer. And the basic idea is how, how do we know, right? How do we know what is true? And uh, just, uh, you know, a good question. How, how, do, how do we know what is true? And you need to have reasons for believing what you believe. And you need to be able to survive any defeaters that uh, come your way. So I, I like that. All right, I've been reading a phenomenal book. It's called Bondi Badlands, The Definitive Story of Sydney's Gay Hate Murders. Kind of gives you some insights into the Bronze Age mindset and uh, the, the Bronze Age lifestyle. So just... Just absolutely awful what uh, happened in in Sydney in the 1980s, right, into the 1990s, right? It's the era of AIDS. And, uh, my God, there, there were just these, these string of, of gay bashings, gay murders. The, these gay men would gather at the cliffs overlooking Bondi Beach. And these men, they just had a smile that would light up a room. But they were... They were like angels among us. They were just the, the sweetest, nicest people. This is John Russell. I mean, John, good old John, he loved animals, man. There he is with the family dog. And here's John Russell as a gregarious 22-year-old with a cheeky sense of humor. Right, He earned good tips at Oxford Street Club, such as the Tropicana. He is relaxing at his home in Bondi in 1979. And uh, here's Ross Warren here, right? TV, TV newsreader, right? And then this is the last photograph of John Russell taken while he's still alive. I mean, these guys just had a, a personality, a, a joy of life. They were taken from us way too early. And this is Ross Warren at home in Wollongong in May 1989. He was making plans to move to Sydney that was much more accepting of the Bronze Age lifestyle right, he, he just had a happy self-confidence he, he was never arrogant good old Ross Warren there he is with his friend Christine Jones on, on the TV set he, Ross he was always a bit of a larrikin he, he just loved practical jokes 
And uh, this is Gilly's Martini's all smiles for his partner, Jacques Moussi. Right, this, this is a holiday photo taken in Bali, 1984. A couple of blokes going to Bali, enjoying the, the Bronze Age lifestyle. Right, this is Jacques and, and Gilly's in Paris, shortly before their departure for Australia. This is Gilly's in 1985. He always wore this yellow spray jacket. He always donned for his uh, cliffside walks. And uh, one of the ways that you signal to other gay men that you're looking for a, you know, some rando gay sex in, in a cave by the cliffs is that you'd, you'd rattle your keys. And that let people know that you're ready for action. He'd just stroll for hours listening to French pop music on his Walkman, always wearing that same yellow spray jacket. And, and this... This sweet man had just had a smile that would light up a room. I mean, look at these soulful eyes. Here he is in the winter of 1984. The only thing he loved more than beating you at cards was spending a day at the beach having some anonymous gay sex. And here's a proud, fresh-faced Constable Stephen Page who started tracking down the, the gay pufta-bashing uh, gangs. But uh, this is a Thai national, Krichikorn Ratajurapathon. Right, this is where he was driven to his death. He's working as a kitchen hand in a Bondi restaurant. But he had a smile that light up a room. And this is Raymond Keane, Department of Main Roads Technician. He was a top-level martial artist. He had a smile that would just light up a room. But his great smile and his top-level martial arts weren't enough to save him from a gang of puffed-bashing killers. Right, this is New Zealander Richard Johnson, right, a, a teacher. And he was lured to Alexandria Park. He was set upon and left for dead. I mean, just because the bloke, I, I think, had written his name and his phone number on a public lavatory wall, and then some young kids thought it'd be funny to call him up and you know, invite him over for some sex, and then they, they bashed him. Here's uh, another teacher, Wayne Tonks. All right? Uh, he, liked the, he liked the lads. And uh, some of them, some of them, I guess they had a homosexual panic is what they describe when he'd invite them over for, you know, for a nice chat and get them high and drunk and have sex with them. And, and they might have suffered from homosexual panic when they came back and killed him. This is Maurice McCarty. He was a technician with the Australian Ballet. And he just had a smile that would light up a room. My God. I mean, I, I didn't really know about the, the Bronze Age lifestyle. I, I, I have, to, have to plead guilty. I just really didn't know. And yeah, I mean... These pictures really bust down stereotypes because none of these guys look gay in the least. Boy, uh, just just heartbreaking. But I didn't know about the Bronze Age lifestyle till I read this book. Uh, came out in two thousand seven, Bondi Badlands: The Definitive Story of Sydney's Gay Hate Murders. So. Ross, the, the TV newsreader, he understood if you were gay in Wollongong and you wanted to get ahead, you had to keep the closet door firmly locked. But he was looking to move to Sydney where you can be more open. Now, 
Ross had a bit of bother. In 1985, he was arrested for lewd behavior in a toilet, right, at a public toilet in Southport, Queensland, with another male in his 20s. Right, now, the embarrassing incident was kept out of the newspapers thanks to the efforts of his mother. But sexual hunger, I think we've all felt sexual hunger. He kept just getting drawn back to the old public toilets and public parks and cliffs and caves and, you know, the gay hangouts to have a bit more anonymous gay sex. I think we can all understand that. I mean, the bloke, he tried to avoid these gay hangouts for a while. You know, he tried to avoid the, the public lavatories. Maybe he even abstained from writing his name and his phone number on there, but he kept being drawn back into them because there just weren't enough gay bars in Sydney, right? If only Sydney had enough gay bars, none of this would have happened. And so, yeah, this TV newsreader, he'd, he'd meet blokes and at uh, Bondi and, you know, hook up with them just a few minutes after meeting. And this is the, the major wage wave of AIDS and, and, you know, all this negative talk about homosexuals and tying them to AIDS. And, but uh, Ross, I want you to know, he always kept condoms in his glove box. I mean, he was an upstanding citizen. Did I mention he had a smile that would just light up a room? He was always the life of a party and a bit of a larrikin. He liked to play practical jokes on people. And he was always very scrupulous about safe sex. I mean, yeah, he was compulsive about he'd have to go to, you know, cliffs and caves and, you know, have it off with strangers. But he was always very scrupulous about, about safe sex. And his, uh, his sexual repertoire, when he'd go to the Bondi cliffs and caves and various gay beats, it, it rarely included penetration because he was very scrupulous about safe sex. I mean, yeah, he's absolutely compulsive in hooking up with, with strangers in a way that, you know, put his life at risk and put other people's lives at risk, and he knew that people were murdered here. But, hey, he probably had a one in two chance of getting off. You know, what's a 50% chance of getting off when, when you know, compared with the less likely, say, one in 20 chance of getting murdered? And then this bloke from Thailand. Did I mention he had a smile that would just light up a room? And he fell in love with Australia. He, he found the Australian lifestyle refreshingly open. This is a place he could breathe more easily and have a lot more anonymous gay sex You know, on the, the caves and the cliffs over Bondi. At last, he could be himself and just start hooking up with randos, blowing and being blown, you know, loving and giving love. Like where he came from, unfortunately, it was better to keep such matters hidden so there wasn't nearly as much anonymous gay sex to be easily had in repressive, patriarchal, uh, bigoted places like Thailand. But on, on Bondi Beach and in its caves, he could be himself and you know have sex with 20 blokes a week. I mean, he, he wanted to live life, man. He wasn't some scaredy cat. He wasn't some Nancy boy, right? There, are, there were no gay bars in, in Bondi. So what was he going to do as a kitchen hand in Bondi looking for a good time? He went to the Bondi clifftops. Like, he knew the gay men hung out there, especially on a Sunday night. I mean, it, it was mainly a social occasion. I mean, just being after to get off and get a blowjob and, you know, trading a hand job. I mean, that was just the, the froth on top of the latte. That was just the icing on the cake. Right? That was just the sprinkles on top of the ice cream cone. And this, this young Thai man... He had a smile that would just light up a room. And unfortunately, there were really homophobic, bigoted, working-class youths around. And I, it just kills me to even repeat some of the things they said. But, like, Bondi is where the, all the F 
woods hang out me and me mates have been showing the gays who's boss so this detective gets on the case knows there are only three ways you can crack a murder case by physical evidence eyewitnesses or a direct confession so in most cases the first two physical evidence and eyewitnesses lead to a direct confession so he begins looking through a long list of brutal crimes against gay men and lesbians like and they weren't bothering anyone all right they were just at home reading literature drinking wine, listening to great music, and having a little bit of anonymous gay sex, you know, on public parks and lavatories. And some of the victims there, right, they, they go to a public park, public lavatory, have some anonymous sex, and they, they look for rough trade, and then sometimes the rough trade turns out to be a lot rougher than they expected. So apparently more than one in five gay homicides, guys, happens at, at, at Beats. So why all this working-class poofter bashing? To prove their masculinity to their mates? Right? It's old alpha hetero male syndrome, guys. That to show they're not gay, right? they they'd go bashing poofters up, disavow. So beats are usually about quick anonymous sex, but some, some gay hangouts, you know, some public lavatories are much more about socializing. I mean, there's a lot of really elevated socializing going on at many of the finest public lavatories. I mean, this is where aristocrats of the spirit, with the Bronze Age mindset leading the Bronze Age lifestyle, they go to these public lavatories, and at many of these finer establishments, it's primarily about socializing. And it's about having your own rituals, such as, you know, when do you give the hand job, and when do you go to the blow job, and when do you go to the straight, you know, cornholing. So many truck stops have their own rituals. Like you, you rattle your keychains to you know, let people know that you're interested in getting it on. Now, the, the Mark's Park at Bondi is a particular kind of gay hangout because it only operated at night. And there are all these areas of scrub and caves that men would go in after they'd met someone on the pathway, you know, had like two minutes of socializing, and then you go you know, have sex. So a gay male would cruise one another by looking at him straight in the eye. This is how you do it, guys and hold his gaze for a second too long or nodding, all right? Or sometimes you you rattle keys to let someone know that you're there and that you're interested. Or who was that U.S. senator? He'd be in a public lavatory, and he'd spread his feet out really wide, and he'd, like, tap his feet under under your section of the, the, the toilet. I hear that's a really good pickup technique. And then it's really awful. You know, some of these gay men going onto the Bondi Beach... All right, they get set up by a decoy and lured into a cave, and then they get bashed by a gang. And they know it's dangerous. They know their life's at risk. But, hey, when you, you got a nut, you got a nut. So first six months in 1990, there were more than 90 gay bashings reported in Sydney and three gruesome, well-publicized gay murders. One man quoted in an article admitted to being in more than 50 gang assaults and robberies of gay men. Now, some blamed the violence on the increasing profile of the gay community in Sydney as if by being more open about their sexuality. Like gay men had no one to blame but themselves for unleashing the furies of violence. As though, you know, the spreading of AIDS was somehow the fault of gay men. And some people today have incredibly bigoted, ignorant perspectives on the gay community because of, you know, orgies leading to the spread of monkeypox. But that's not representative of what, you know, really life is like for most gay men in America. So apparently there are a few real murder mysteries, according to this book. There are only guilty people with dark secrets 
Witnesses who won't come forward out of fear or loyalty to the killer. Maybe a case that remains unsolved because of a misstep or two by the investigators who misread critical pieces of evidence. But the unvarnished truth is always out there. So, uh, former teacher William Allen. Did I tell you about this guy? All right, he's just not another victim of gay bashing. All right. This guy had a smile that would just it would light up a room. That's how magnetic his smile was. And what a teacher. Just a, a pedagogue of the highest order. He, he wasn't just interested in penetrating young men's bodies. He also wanted to penetrate their minds. He was like a real embodiment of the Bronze Age mindset and the Bronze Age lifestyle. And yeah, there was a particular toilet public toilet that he liked to hang out you know where he'd been uh, brutally bashed but he also knew that there was a really good chance of getting off so he, he thought he had more of a chance going to this public toilet getting off than getting murdered I mean it was after all it was just a regular public park you know, where a lot of gays would hang out at night and get each other off and uh, he left his, his phone number on a cubicle wall in, in the toilet block I mean a lot but Let's be honest, a lot of teachers do that. I don't know. Most, I think probably most, most teachers go around leaving their, their names and their phone numbers on cubicle walls on public toilets. And, yeah, he had a predilection for teenage boys. Like, he liked to hang out, you know, at these gay beats and have sex in public places. He had, you know, a lot of unsavory visitors late at night. He liked the rough trade. And, yeah, I mean, the police were looking into him for having sex with an underage boy. I, I will give you all that. But, I mean, if you only knew this bloke, he had a smile that would light up a room, particularly after he just had sex with a teenage boy. I mean, just, just, it would just warm the cockles of your cold, homophobic heart. And uh, so this uh, this public lavatory it was known as a pufter's hangout a gay beat and uh you know blokes would scribble their phone numbers on there and uh, so these lads would go you know write down these phone numbers and then call you know these teachers who'd scribble their phone numbers on this public lavatory and uh, richard johnson i told you about richard i showed you a picture of richard johnson he was a slim he was a darkly handsome 33 year old new zealander who lived in Coogee. and the most unforgettable thing about Richard Johnson was that he had a smile that would just light up a room. And so the boys invited him to come to this uh, public toilet block to have some sex with them. And they enticed him by saying, you know, we're boys and we like to give head jobs. And like, what's this 33-year-old New Zealander, you know, wh what's he got to do? Like, how could he, like, possibly say no? He'd scribbled his phone number there. You know, he was obviously looking for gay sex, and now there are boys who like to give head jobs. Like, like you think he's like Mother Teresa? So he goes there, you know, at 10 p.m., and then all these blokes set upon him and beat him up. And, and as they're beating him, they say very unsympathetic and homophobic things, like, why be a effing poofter? And there's no point in being a poof. And then they laughed at him as he pleaded with them to leave me alone. I'm sorry, I'm gay. Now, I showed you that, that uh, amazing picture of Wayne Tonks, another school teacher. 
He was a very respectable man. And the most outstanding quality about Wayne Tonks was he had a smile that would just light up a room. And he didn't go to gay bars, right? He was a very respectable man. He, he was afraid of being spotted in gay bars by colleagues or students. So instead, he hung out at public lavatories and gay beats such as you know Bondi Cliffs. And he had a reckless habit of leaving his phone number on toilet walls and toilet doors. You know, he scrolled it, you know, everywhere where he thought he could get a head job. But don't think he was out of control, right? To reduce the obvious dangers of running into any of his working-class students, he only did this in areas you know, away from where he worked, like at least a few blocks away from where he worked. He, he avoided the high-risk inner cities and the eastern suburbs. Now, yeah, there's this 16-year-old bloke, Andrew, who claims that this teacher Wayne Tonks plied him with alcohol, you know, played pornographic videos to him, you know, offered him a massage, and then sexually assaulted him. And, yeah, you'll have all these friends testifying that he had a predilection for, for young men right, into their teens. But there's, there's no suggestion he ever had sex with anyone under 16. And when he did have sex with teenage boys, he always developed this smile that would just light up a room. It, it was amazing. And I showed you that picture of Richard Keem. He was tall and he was lean and he was muscular. He had the kind of body that most men would envy. And he just had this smile that would light up a room. And around his neck, he wore a silver medallion, declaring himself to be, you know, a black belt karate expert. Then one night, he went to this public toilet in Allison Park in, in Randwick, January 1987. He was savagely beaten and uh, left to die. So he was intended to drive down to Canberra to join his wife and his two-year-old son. But sometime after midnight, he just had to... You know, go to this public toilet block and try to get off with some blokes. I mean, he didn't identify as homosexual. He didn't lead the gay lifestyle. He just went to gay places and had anonymous gay sex, but he didn't identify as gay, didn't lead the gay lifestyle. Like, the bloke had a wife, he had kids, but the most, he was black belt in karate, all right, just defied all the, the stereotypes about gay men. And the most incredible thing about it was he just had a smile after a bit of anonymous gay sex, he just had a smile that would just light up a room. Then there was Maurice McCarty. Right? Had uh, some rather rough-looking you know, young man over and then got murdered in his own backyard. Like, he, one minute he's shooting the breeze about the rugby with this young man, and next minute he's getting bashed. And the, the basher says that uh, McCarty promised him cheap marijuana but instead poured him a glass of wine and then made a pass. And the sexual overture was too much for the young man. He simply snapped like he had homosexual panic. All right? it's, it's like cancer. Right? Many men carry out horrific acts of violence in response to another man trying to fondle and kiss them. And guys, if other men try to fondle and kiss you, like please don't, don't fall into homosexual panic. Now, the criminal class is ruled by a brutal code of silence. Even the toughest thugs are afraid of what will happen to them if they inform on their mates. And this police inspector, he's not dealing with a single serial monster. He's dealing with a multi-headed hydra, a diffuse group of men and women who'd made it their hobby to kill gays. And killers don't come out of nowhere. They have a history. So that's with just bashing gays again and again and again, and then they start throwing them off cliffs. So there was a... Alexandria 8 gang who are just bashing gay men all over Sydney. Hundreds of gay men. 
And they'd say things like, oh, I know that puffed. I've seen him before. I've belted him before. And they, sometimes they'd even take the wigs of these gay men. I mean, how disgusting is that? I, I'm just learning so much about the Bronze Age mindset in this book. So one guy got beat up really bad because he, he didn't like Oxford Street's gay bars, right? The first step into the darkness of a gay bar was just always so intimidating. Right? There's all the hungry eyes checking you out, all the leather queens, the preening gym bunnies, right? So he preferred something much more homey and, and safe and warm and inviting like the, the cliffs over Bondi Beach. So he goes there and he gets bashed. And he's in a real wreck, so he, he's asking for help, and he, he's knocking on a door and looking up at a 20-something man standing on his balcony and yells out that he'd been bashed. And, and the bloke yells back, I'm not going to help you. I don't help Puftus. My God. My God. And many of these public toilets are just way too open. There's just not enough discretion for a bit of anonymous gay sex. You know, people can just walk in on you, and sometimes they take exception. So apparently it was the rocky area on the perimeter of Mark's Park and the bushes on top of the flat area of the park that were the favored cruising spots because they were so private. And many blokes, they came nearly every night to this spot, but not necessarily for sex, sometimes just for company. Right? The sex was just the foam on top of the latte. It was just the sprinkles on top of the ice cream cone. And after they just had a bit of anonymous gay sex, they, they would... They would get a, a smile that would just light up all of Bondi. All right, you're probably asking, what is a guru? Like, decode the Bronze Age mindset for me. Here are the decoding the gurus, Chris Cavanaugh talking with Matt Brown. Yeah. So there's a there's a word guru from I think Sanskrit and Pali uh, from around the Indian region. Um, that that means like teacher or one with specialist knowledge in a particular field, right? But that that particular understanding of guru has expanded in usage, so that now guru refers to um, generally somebody possessing specific qualities. In particular, that they're someone who has special knowledge and insight that they can provide to their followers, usually from mastery of some particular technique or information. And there are other related concepts, things like shamans, oracles, prophets, soothsayers, so on. Um, these are figures that are often more associated with pre-modern societies, though that is not true. They exist and are popular in, in many contemporary uh, societies. But the, there's lots of differences there. And as an anthropologist, I'm interested in those two. But the through line is the ability to deal with the unseen world, right? Yeah. The supernatural forces or magical or spiritual forces. And I think it's fair to say that in most cases, gurus are seen within that uber, right? That yeah. they, they're giving paths and guidances on, on uh, the, the right way to do things and also how to marshal mystical energies and forces. Yeah, yeah. How to, how to lay meaning over the world, um, provide some guidance for your life. Now, that's, that's the traditional notion of a guru. Now, you and I coined the very catchy term of secular guru, which is to, um, it, it, and it really encompasses a kind of a proposition, which is perhaps um, this role, which we associate with the kind of magical and spiritual beliefs of pre-modern societies, and supposedly would have no role in our scientific, technocratic, rationalist, neoliberal world that we live in today. We propose that maybe there, there is still this role for a guru, but they just clad themselves in a different 
garb. Um, so, you know, because people still have the same urge to find meaning in the world. Um, they still want to make sense of everything. They want guidance and solutions for their moral, personal, political, interpersonal dilemmas. And, uh, you know, for the gurus, um, the, the modern ones, just like the old fashioned ones, um, there's, there's strong motivations to um, lean into this role. You know, you get recognition, you get attention, you get respect, and ultimately you're going to get financial resources as well. And I think another thing that they have in common, one last thing, is, is that they, in terms of the personal qualities that make a good guru, what you needed to have in the olden days was to, you had to be a performer. You needed to be charismatic. You had to be engaging. You had to put on a good show. Um, th these are the kinds of people that made good gurus. And that was true then. And I guess we propose that um, the same thing tends to be true now, like almost present natural levels of self-confidence and self-assurance and having that ability to project authority, project wisdom, and send people the clear message that you have the capacity for unique insights. You're in connection with forces beyond their ken, and they need to listen to you. Yeah. And there's one nuance I would add here, Matt, because you as an ill-informed psychologist might have made the mistake of thinking that magic and spirituality had retreated from modernity. But anthropologists have had the, your number for decades pointing out that this is not the case, that uh, even in the most overtly secularized society, people are very enamored with uh, spiritual frameworks and approaches. Religion still exists, flourishes in the alternative uh, spirituality space in many contemporary societies. But even when you look back at the age of rationalism and Victorian gentlemen uh, striding the globe, the theosophists and, and various um, esoteric arts were, were uh, prized and people had interest in. So I, I mentioned this just to say that uh, modernity did not do away with religion, though there, there is, uh, I think, a lot more validity to the secularization thesis than um, another set of sociologists argued. Um, we don't need to get into the academic debates around that, that topic. Um, but the, the crucial distinction, I think, from the concept that we are interested in is that most of those figures still professed a fascination and an interest with esoteric spiritual arts, right? The gurus that we are interested in, they don't do that. What they lean in more is uh, expertise in secular topics. This can be philosophy, it can be politics. It often is science. And, uh, you know, in, in, just for an illustration, Brett Weinstein links most of his views to an evolutionary lens, right? And they might have sympathy and interest for religious topics like Jordan Peterson has a clear religious impulse, but in a lot of occasions, he channels that into a symbolic interpretation and he still links it to his uh, evolutionary framework about competence hierarchies and his uh, Jungian psychology expertise, right? His clinical expertise in psychology. So that's the, the part which kind of marks them out is that they grind their expertise, not in the ability to manipulate esoteric forces or commune, commune with the ancient masters, but with their secular knowledge of science and psychology and politics and these kinds of topics. Yeah. Now, it might sound like a bit of a contradiction, but, you know, a lot of them do lean into woo, for want of a better term. You know, they're into strange diets. They're like Jordan Peterson. They, they see the mystical influence of the word of God you know, everywhere. Um, and I think, like, for me, I see it as, like, the, the, the scientific grounding, while certainly there is a kind of rationalization, like, the, the appeal to the heart is, is kind of in that old-fashioned, magical kind of sense, right? revealed truth um, and rhetoric. Um, but they certainly do frame it as being informed um, by logic and science and philosophy and all of these secular things. Um, the final thing I guess we've got to say is, it's another difference, I guess, with the, um, with the traditional gurus is like for, in a traditional society, like there was not a mainstream media. <laughs> there was, there generally wasn't kind of institutions in the sense that we know them. Mm, yes. Yeah, I, be I, careful. Not, <laughs> yeah, I, I, know what, I know what you were thinking, but I'm not saying that, of course. Um, but, you know, my point is, is that the, the shamans or the gurus, the spiritual leaders, whatever, in a traditional format, like they, they were the authority. Like they weren't, they weren't in competition or reacting to or rebelling against some sort of mainstream thing out there generally. 
Um, uh, well, I, well. Uh, is it Discord? <laughs> Discord? This is meant to be an explainer, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I, all I would say is like we had the anthropologist, uh, cognitive anthropologist Manvir Singh on, and he was talking about shamanism as this recurrent cultural technology and an early developing profession, right? Because there's lots of need to manage uncertainty in, in pre-modern societies and also modern societies, but um, people always want to manage uncertain outcomes. And if you believe that uncertain outcomes are being impacted by unseen forces, then somebody who can marshal those forces to give you better outcomes is a figure that's useful in a society, right? So, you know, if your crops are potentially destroyed by the weather, somebody that can help you. Okay, shocking news breaking on Mediaite. All right, Stephen Crowder sent photos of his genitals and exchanged drugs in super creepy workplace, ex-staffers say. Stephen Crowder has been a lightning rod for controversy since he launched his own online show, Louder with Crowder, but behind the scenes, his bombastic behavior. All right, this is where the the Bronze Age mindset and the Bronze Age lifestyle may not have been perfectly aligned with his best interests. So we get allegations of abusive behavior toward his estranged wife, Hillary, claims of toxic workplace conduct with former employees. Wow. So he's moved from YouTube to Rumble. So one former employee said he received unsolicited he received unsolicited sexually graphic texts that included photos of Crowder's genitalia. And these texts and images were reviewed by Mediaite. He dismissed it as frat boy humor. In hindsight, it was super creepy and felt groomerish. Always felt like childish behavior in the moment, but then felt predatory in hindsight. Like he was always testing people's comfort levels with that kind of behavior. Because he was the boss and he had no accountability. It just continued to happen. In addition to receiving unwanted sexual text messages, the former employee alleged that uh, Stephen Crowder habitually exposed himself to other male staffers. Only to male staffers. Hmm. He's saying, "Forty, cut out this lowbrow gossip about Stephen Crowder and get back to these two premier intellectuals." control the Weller to lessen um, the possibility of that is valuable. Now, whether they can actually do it or not, it doesn't matter. The, the existence of that niche is kind of like a cultural evolutionary uh, attractor position, right? Now, I say that, Matt, because in, in those cases, like you said, an early developing profession, and of course, there, you know, there's many other types of roles in society, but you could say, well, there would have been societies without institutionalized uh, doctrinal religions. And so shamans and charismatic uh, religious specialists or spiritual specialists uh, can, can go unencumbered. But the caveat I wanted to add was, even in the case where you do have competition, where you have institutionalized re religions and you have doctrinal uh, mm. traditions coming in, you often do have a competition right, between priests and orthodox interpretations and these more dramatic um, practitioners or but but also within the tradition right the more drama you can create all right the easier it is to to build a, a following so how does uh, bronze age pervert rank on the garometer developed by matt brown chris cavanaugh here so we're talking about exploitative gurus who produce ersatz wisdom meaning a corrupt epistemics that creates the appearance of useful knowledge but has none of the substance all right this would work to describe almost all right-wing pundits. So galaxy brainness, right? Someone who presents ideas that appear to be too profound for an average mind to comprehend, but are in truth reasonably trivial, if not nonsensical. So I would say that uh, Bronze Age pervert is kind of low to middle in scoring for galaxy brainness because he is a genuine scholar. He does have genuine knowledge. He is brilliant. So gurus often present themselves as fonts of wisdom, and it is an all-encompassing kind of knowledge that tends to span multiple disciplines and topics. So when Bronze Age Pervert is talking about the areas that he knows, he is a genuine scholar 
and has genuine learning. When he talks about you know multiple disciplines and topics, then then his learning, of course, you know attenuates and attenuates until he's here. We're talking. He's got like Luke Ford levels of expertise. How, how sad. So gurus like to link together disparate concepts such as quantum mechanics, logic, and the nature of consciousness. They often present themselves as a polymath who can offer novel insights in many different fields. They often allude to their own accomplishments and exaggerate them to a shameless degree. I think Bronze Age pervert does this so much. They constantly offer hot takes on technical topics, dismiss the perspectives of genuine experts, and they're very good at performance. Well, this is Bronze Age pervert. He is very good at uh, performance. Cultishness, being a guru is a social role. A guru is only a guru. There are people who regard them as such. Yeah, I think that would apply to uh, Bronze Age pervert. All right, let's get uh, Stephen J. James here. Um, what the beef is between these two, but Nick is going to refute uh, some of what Thomas has got to say. I've got a clip. I've clipped something out. I did some research earlier today. Uh, we'll look at that. we listen to the man himself give the backstory of what is this beef? What is it between the author of Bronze Age pervert, or Bronze Age mindset, Bronze Age pervert, and Nick Fuentes. I'm proud of you, Damien. Best friend online. All right. Um, let's go, dude. This. So set, settle in. We're going to put some stuff out. We'll listen to Nick. Explain the beef. Then we'll be back. We'll look at Telegram. Uh, then we'll get out of here. But uh, I think I've turned off the recording. In expectation of a long one. Some of the Telegram stuff I've got. Some of the spoken out on Telegram. It's hilarious news. <laughs> Space that Nick did on the 29th. Uh, about one week ago. Come on, yeah, just thank play. you uh, for protracting me in here. Um... So as far as what Bab believes or doesn't believe about, you know, how we're going to save Western civilization, um, to me is really less important. Because the thing is, and I, I actually had a much more agnostic view of him than I do now, years ago. You know, when I got started on Twitter, 2016, 2017, we were mutuals, actually. And we were mutuals for years. And he had his face and I had my face. And we were different, of course. He's not Christian. I would say he's actually anti-Christian. And I don't say that as an attack. I just say that descriptively. I think that he takes every opportunity to throw Christians under the bus. That's my perception. Be that as it may, my side is obviously Christian, Catholic, America first. His side is classicist. Uh, you know, he's into Nietzsche and, and he's secular and all of that. Okay. <clears throat> and so, as I said, for years, I took the same view that all of you had that, well, maybe people that want there to be some kind of uh, peace or detente between the two camps, that was the status quo. That was a dynamic. And I was content to say he's over there. I didn't really like his content. I didn't really like his book. I didn't really like his jokes and everything. Um, but I had him on my show. Actually, before he started doing interviews, when his book came out, I said, hey, you want to come on my show? He said, well, I don't want to voice docs. So he said, could you prepare questions and I'll prepare answers and I'll send Mike Maud to read the answers on your show on my behalf. And I said, sure. And I think that was in the beginning of 2019. I want to say that was May or sometime in the spring of 2019. So we were cool. And then we were not cool because he attacked me first. You know, and I've seen his people and him on his timeline. They're saying, oh, you know, why, why does Nick got to go and attack me? Why is Nick targeting me? Why is he sour grapes? Why is he causing all this so-called infighting? I didn't start it. I was cool. Even though I didn't, I never really cared for the guy. I was always polite, respectful, diplomatic, etc. And what he attacked me over uh, in December 2019 was an event that I put on. I put on an event called the Groyper Leadership Summit. And that was after the Groyper War. And this was an extremely low-key event. We uh, put out a poster. It was me, Patrick Casey, Jake Lloyd. We were the speakers. We put out some promo materials on Twitter. And, and this was after all the Groyper War battles. We said, okay, Groyper War's over. We won. We're going to do a conference outside of the Turning Point Conference. And, you know, we're going to give a statement. We're going to give sort of like a press conference on the events that had transpired and our views and sort of distinguish ourselves from Turning Point. And so the poster goes up. And right away, Bronze Age Pervert puts out a tweet shitting all over the event. And uh, if you'll give me a second, I can pull up exactly the tweet. I have it here Sad. in front of me. Because somebody asked me Why for this the other hate? day because they didn't know the whole story. So I actually went back and dug it up. 
I mean, why do we have to have all this gay drama among two of the premier thought leaders of our time? Makes me so sad. And there was a big article written about this in Countercurrents magazine uh, at the time, December 5th, 2019. So he puts out on December 2nd, 2019, he says, totally unacceptable. I strongly recommend not to register to this and for sure not to attend it. This goes against every principle of OPSEC that I've recommended for years, has potential to become a disaster. At the very least, you will be doxxed. I've long recommended make strong friendships, keep it loose and decentralized, rely on loyalty to known friends rather than ideology. Or And uh, when he says make strong friendships, I mean, he, he's talking in the broadest possible terms, but a lot of great, strong, deep, long-lasting friendships begin with, with a hookup in a public lavatory or just, you know, tossing each other off on, on the Bondi cliffs. I mean, that's the Bronze Age mindset, the Bronze Age lifestyle, right? That's how you really solidify a bond between two aristocrats of the spirit, all right? Followers of the Bronze Age mindset, they are the, the real aristocrats around us. And what could be more aristocratic than having sex with other blokes in public lavatories? Central figures succeed in the normal world in business law. Don't follow my path. Infiltrate the security apparatus with your friends. And so I texted him after that tweet came out and I said, hey, like, I think you're mistaken. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I said, I think you're mistaken because this is just going to be tw literally 20 people at an Airbnb, 20, 25 people. It's all people that I know personally. So it's, it's literally not only is it not an outdoor, it's not an outdoor event. It's not a public event. It's not even. An and most importantly, there's not going to be any yucky women around. Right. This is just going to be aristocrats of the spirit. Right. Just just guys, you know, penetrating each other's souls, maybe penetrating each other's bodies. But let's not get hung up on the, you know, the modafinil on top of the crystal light. All right. This is just blokes here having, having you know, intense interactions. These are the aristocrats of the spirit. Right. Why do aristocrats of the spirit, whether they're devotees of Nick Fuentes or Bronze Age pervert, why do they have to fight? An event where you can just apply to or buy a ticket. It's an invite only. And it's, it's all people that we know. It's all people that one of the three organizers knows personally. I said, so, you know, the idea that you're... Look, there are legitimate reasons to criticize Nick Fuentes for this or for that. But you can't deny the man's charm. You can't deny the man's charisma. I mean, Nick Fuentes, he has a smile that just lights up a room at the minimum going to get doxxed and that it has the potential to become a disaster. I think in some other tweet, he alluded to Charlottesville. I said, that, that's just disingenuous. I said, so could you take that tweet down? Like, maybe you don't understand. And he said, no, no, this is a terrible idea. This is going to be Charlottesville too. Everyone's going to get doxxed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, nothing, nothing gay here. I, I, there's absolutely nothing catty, nothing gay, nothing, nothing homosexual here in this fight between Nick Fuentes and Bronze Age Pervert. These are just two of the greatest intellectuals of our day, having what is primarily a philosophical argument, right? They're not catty and gay and, you know, fighting for, for clout. This is over great ideas. I mean, uh, I, I, I got to be honest, I feel like a Lilliputian. I feel like a dwarf next to these two giants. And, I mean, I've got my differences with Bronze Age pervert, but he is a, a genuine scholar, He's frequently brilliant. He's undeniably brave. And just has charisma off the charts. I mean, Bronze Age pervert. This guy, he has a smile that, that just lights up a room. Uh, uh, I mean, what can you say? I mean, I, I'm just...
the, the, the smiles, the, the charisma of those with the Bronze Age mindset. I mean, the happy self-confidence and yet not arrogant. Right? That's, I, you could say that about Nick. You could say that about BAP. Or you could just say that about people living the Bronze Age lifestyle. I mean, they're larrikins. Yeah. But they love playing practical jokes. But, I mean, the, the charisma, the, the smiles that just light up a room, just the, the childlike innocence when they're engaging in this anonymous, you know, gay sex in public lavatories, it's just, it's not, it's not vulgar, right? It, it's not like what you think. It's just a, a sweet innocence to all this you know, man-boy love. And, and, you know, we try to judge it. We try to put, you know, labels on it. But th- these people, they just have they just have smiles that light up a room. I'm not sure if I've I mentioned that. You have this dynamic where there's a, a kind of constant push and pull between figures who lean more towards, you know, idiosyncratic, dramatic, charismatic um, interpretations and those which lean more towards like orthodox textual um, dogma. And, and in, in both cases, you can have splintering and you can have little flowerings and you can have people coming back into the traditions and reinvigorating them. And you just need to look at modern religion to see that you have charismatic uh, individuals who perform like guru-ish rules and you have, you know, very... Uh, serious priests and theologians and so on so it's just to say i think that gurus inhabit all societies and all areas including traditional religion new age religion uh, uh question would 40 prefer to be neighbors with pufters or with a sterile uh, bachelor I, i'd prefer to be with good people who are smart and uh, plenty of gays uh, wonderful people pro-social leading you know elevated lives and plenty of religious people who are married with kids are absolutely miserable, like uh, that architect who apparently murdered all those prostitutes in and around Long Island, right? His family seem miserable. His marriage seem miserable. They all seem miserable together. So life is complicated. I'm sure you can meet wonderful people having anonymous gay sex in public lavatories. Like non-doctrinal religions and now secular modern society. So, so our argument, I believe we're in accord on this, is that it's a recurrent social role. And we are looking at a modern manifestation of it, which has some distinguishing characteristics, but which is part of a broader category um, that, mm-hmm. uh, that has those features I just outlined. <laughs> yes, yes. We're in accord, we're in accord. Um, Would uh, Luke Ford rather be neighbors with Bronze Age Perver, Nick Fuentes, Norvin Hobbs, or Joseph Cotto? I'd much rather be fr- neighbors with Joseph Cotto. I like Joseph Cotto. I would enjoy you know, hanging out with uh, Joseph Cotto. I guess the only thing that's new is that the the kinds of secular gurus that we look at at the moment do seem to operate in the shadow of mm. the in- institutions, mainstream media, the, the blue church of the academy, as they yeah. like to call it. And as you said, they don't draw their epistemic and moral authority from with reference to like the like an orthodox consensus uh, literature or whatever, but rather with reference to not their spiritual powers or their connection with God, but their polymathic powers, their unique intellectual capabilities. So just in that sense, that's I think is a little bit new that they I think they operate in the shadow of modernity. And so there's the fissures and paranoias um, and alienation that's going on in modernity and secular gurus um, can, can capitalize on that. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just foreshadowing, Chris, our theme of anti-establishmentarianism. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. So, um, well, one thing I think to mention here as well, and this is something which people always struggle with, is that when you are defining a category or a tribe, for example, <laughs> there, there can be individuals who do not fit 
neatly into the, uh, what's that word whenever you have the, the kind of prototypical figure, right? So you might set uh, a bunch of characteristics that are defining of the group or the kind of person that would be in the group. And then you will find that various people uh, related to a group, you know, embody those features more. Look, I, I like what Ricardo says here. Luke doesn't see race. He doesn't care about sexual orientation, right? He's happy to be neighbors with any, you know, aristocrat of the spirit. I used to see the world in a very bigoted, narrow-minded, frankly, racist, homophobic, Islamophobic, just Eurocentric. I mean, I was imprisoned by outdated gender norms, outdated racial, ethnic, and religious stereotypes. I was, I was imprisoned and just clinging to my guns and my religion. And you know what set me free? It was when I started drinking Soylent. Right? It is creamy chocolate flavor. It's a ready-to-drink meal. Once I started embracing Soylent, having you know, a couple of Soylent every day, I immediately started becoming multicultural. Now, I realize that Soylent drinkers are on the vanguard of teaching European civilization how to be multicultural. But unless European civilization learns to be multicultural, it will not be survived. And silent drinkers, we're going to be resented for our leading role in teaching Europeans how to be multicultural. And, and that's just the price of being a silent drinker. But I, I, I'm amazed at how much more tolerant I am, how much more open I am to, to loving and, and being loved. People of all races, religions, ethnicities, orientations, like, you know, seeing past these outdated, you know, gender, sexual, racial orientation perspectives. And as long as I keep drinking the creamy chocolate Soylent, all right, I, I just find myself just thriving in our new wonderful multicultural Los Angeles. I, I really feel like I, I'm now, you know, properly equipped to, to deal with the elite because I get my Soylent just shipped to me in big fat boxes by, by Amazon, subscribe and save. Like I save five to 15%, right? By doing subscribe and save. And then I subscribe, I save another 5% on top of that because I use the Amazon credit card where I get 5% back. And I really recommend the Soylent Creamy Chocolate when it's chilled. I mean, is there anything better than starting the day with a nice creamy chocolate Soylent, taking a, a modafinil, some uh, mushroom reishi, you know, popping down uh, six beef organ capsules, uh, having a cold shower, prayer, meditation, and just embracing reality, loving what is, trying to have the best possible relations with everyone you meet, you know, getting together with your mates. You know, and, and what's really good with Soylent is getting together with your mates and just pouring it into cocktail glasses, and you're all just sitting around some of the finest Beverly Hills establishment, you know, enjoying Soylent. And there are so many delicious flavors of Soylent, and it has is, is really, really helped me become much more multicultural. I am such a better man thanks to Soylent. I, I've been able to transcend my outdated sexual, racial orientation stereotypes that were imprisoning me, causing me to lead a much smaller life, causing me to walk around with a chip on my shoulder. I had these outdated notions about 1350, right? I had, you know, all sorts of outdated 
gender, sex, racial orientation, religious, ethnic, you know, stereotypes that were just keeping my life small, keeping me imprisoned in my bigotry and hatred of, and suspicion and fear of outgroups. And now I meet a refugee, right? I, I meet an illegal immigrant. My first thing is nobody is illegal, bro. He just doesn't have his, his documents. I mean, where I go in L.A., they, they keep Soylent on tap at all of the finest public restrooms in, in Los Angeles. And then, then I've got this, uh, this, this green vegetable juice because I don't have time to make a salad. I, I like to order about 20 of these at a time from Amazon. Suja Organic is Uber Greens. Right, so I have my Soylent, and then, and then I have my Uber Greens, and I'm just much more at ease in our multicultural world. Or less, right? But there is no group where there's no divergence amongst members, and everyone is a prototypical example, because that would be uh, Borg or something. And even in the Borg, they had that guy Hugh, right? And so, the, yeah, the humans don't operate like that. So, and categories, our conceptual categories do not operate like that. So when we are talking about secular gurus, we're talking about a family resemblance category, which means there are recurrent features that mark out the group, but it does not mean that those features will not be found in any other groups. Look, you can, you can, you can take my, my green flex bar when you can pry it out of my cold, dead hands. But it's not going to be easy because I, I did – how many pull-ups did I did, do? I did like uh, uh, sets of three, right? I did three pull-ups at a time. I did about four four sets of three, and half of them were kind of – didn't quite make it up, couldn't quite get it up. I don't know. I've had trouble getting all the way up with my pull-ups since I started drinking Soylent. Or that – you can say, okay, when you have four out of 10 of these, you are not a guru. When you have six out of 10, you are a guru. It is a spectrum and it is a category and people can be in multiple categories. This is sometimes hard for people and they think that that makes it like, oh, it's so too, so wishy-washy and so strange, but you do this every day of your life. You operate in this function. I am a man. I am Irish. I am incredibly cool. <laughs> and I am a person with brown hair, right? Like these are all overlapping categories. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not hard, but people don't get it. And, you know, I can be a fan of, yeah, life on the spectrum is great. I don't know what, what the problem is. I, I'm a man too, and I like to drink Soylent. Bye-bye.